Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Jeremiah chapter 25, and we're in verse 1. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the twenty-third year in which the word of the Lord has come to me. And I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Repent now, every one of his evil doings, of his, excuse me, of his evil way and his evil doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Talk about patience. God had sent, been sending Jeremiah. This is not the end of his prophecies. God had been sending Jeremiah for uh, 23 years to his people, telling them to repent that you know he would change things if they would just turn their hearts back to him. There were other prophets as well as Jeremiah. We'll be discussing a couple uh, other ones later on this morning. That in, in this same time frame, they were contemporary to Jeremiah. They were going forth and, and you know, by the Lord, telling the people and, and, and pleading with the people to repent of, uh, of their sins. And uh, the message that the prophets in Jeremiah in particular, had, had been giving to the people was to repent now. To repent, what does that mean? Well, it means to turn away, to change directions the way you're going. You know, to turn around and go a different way, to change the course that you're on. And, and, and when this prophecy was going forth, the prophets were saying, repent now. This is going on for 23 years. Repent now, repent now, repent now. Talk about patience. God over and over saying, now is the time to repent. But the th- problem is, that window of opportunity was closing. God wasn't going to continue striving with the nation of Judah, urging them to repent. You know, that reminds me, back in Genesis, if you read uh, right before the flood, you know, the, the wor- earth was full of wickedness before the flood. And in Genesis um, 6, 3, it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And a lot of people say, well, that's, you know, God's saying the lifespan of man is going to be reduced down to no more than 120 years. And that could very well be, I mean, we, we definitely saw after the flood that, that man's lifespan was shortened. Uh, considerably um, and continue to be shortened. But I believe what's actually being spoken here is that the Lord is saying, I'm I'm not going to strive with them, and yet, you know, they have 120 more years before the flood occurred. And uh, so, you know, here we have this situation where God says, I'm done striving. I'm not going to strive with you anymore. 
God's saying the same thing to his people, Judah. That's a scary thing when God says, hey, I'm not striving with you anymore. I'm just going to give you over to whatever it is that you're continuing in. I'm just, I'm done. That's a, that's a scary part. Well, God obviously didn't just, you know, overnight say, that's it, I'm, I've given up on you for 23 years. And probably much more longer than that anyways. Um, always pleading with the people to repent. Verse 8, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual uh, desolations. Isn't that interesting? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, world ruler, was soon to become the world ruler at that time, my servant. And yet here he is going and attacking, you know, the nation of Judah and, and conquering Jerusalem, destroying everything. You know, lots of people lost their lives, and yet God says he's my servant. Kind of reminds me of what Peter said in his in his uh, letter, in his epistle, where he says, you know, we are to obey the authorities that are placed over us, the governmental authorities, because they're God's servant for wrath. If we, if we, you know, just disregard the laws of the land, they are God's servants to punish us. And, and I see that, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar being God's servant, he's used as God's instrument uh, for judgment on his people. But I think... There's much more to it than just saying, well, that's, that's what he means by my servant. Because when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, they took most of the people of, of, of the inhabitants of the land, they took most of them into captivity into uh, Babylon with them. And among the captives, there was a young man named Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, his name is Belteshazzar. And along with him, three other friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You guys know the story, right? It's all the stories. You probably watch the Veggie Tales. So you know Shack, Rack, and whatever. Um, Rack, Shack, and Benny. Thanks. Um, but these men, these young men, went into captivity uh, with Babylon, or excuse me, with Nebuchadnezzar. They went into Babylon, and during that time, of course, if you've read the book of Daniel before, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And uh, he wants it interpreted. None of the, none of the uh, magicians or anybody can interpret it. And so finally Daniel is brought before the king, before Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel interprets the dream. And the, the, the book of Daniel is an amazing prophetic book talking about all the kingdoms of the ages and down to the last days, and even including the Antichrist. And fascinating prophecies. Well, because Daniel interpreted the dream uh, correctly, the king promoted Daniel, gave him all kinds of gifts, made him a ruler. Here's this captive, this slave, made him a ruler over the whole province of Babylon. Not only that, but he made him the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. The wise men of Babylon, you know. It's an amazing thing because when we get to the time of Christ's birth, right, there's, a, there's those wise men that came from the east, Seeking the star. You know, they, they saw the star. They knew that there was a king of, of Israel that was going to be born. And so they're going to find this king that they had heard about, that they had studied the stars. These were uh, influenced, I believe, by, by Daniel, who was the chief of the wise men 
in Babylon. And so, you know, here's this, this Jewish person who goes into Babylon and he's, God, you know, miraculously arranges a situation where he's in this great place of influence and he starts telling the people about the prophecies of the Lord and all this stuff. And pretty soon, now we've got these wise men wanting to find, you know, the, the Messiah, the, who is king of, the, uh, king of kings, who's born there. And uh, anyways, but that's not all. There's a whole lot more to the story of Daniel and a lot more to the story about Nebuchadnezzar. But it's very interesting. The last recorded words of Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible is in Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. And listen to this. This is Nebuchadnezzar's words. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. The world ruler of the time, the king of Babylon, became a believer in God, the the God of Israel, and humbled himself before the God of Israel. That wouldn't have happened if God hadn't have brought Daniel into that picture, Daniel was, influ- was, was used by God to bring about this great change to this king who was all, at that time, the most powerful person on the face of the earth. The sovereignty of God, it just totally amazes me. Because you go back and you go, okay, well, this was, you know, the Jews had disobeyed God. God's punishing them. He's taking them into Babylon. They're, they're going into captivity. And yet, even in the midst of their disobedience and in their favor and their um, unfaithfulness, God is still working. That just blows me away when you think about it. And God can even take my failure, and He can take your failures, and He can use it for His glory. That doesn't mean we we fail because well, I want to see how God uses it. But the beautiful thing about God is that He is sovereign, and He makes all these things work out. and 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 so here. Even in spite or despite of the the people's unfaithfulness and their failure, God is still at work drawing people to him. And so when he says, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, he's not just saying my servant of wrath, but but God was actually going to make him a servant. It's amazing. Well, going back to Jeremiah's prophecy here in verse 10. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. I don't know how many of you guys, probably the younger ones maybe don't remember, but I remember Gene Dixon. You guys remember Gene Dixon? Was a, she was a syndicated columnist. Um, I think she was out of L.A. or something like that. But anyway, she always had these astrological predictions. She you know, had all these kinds of predictions. Well, I, I'm like, man, I remember Gene Dixon, so I did a Wikipedia. That's, you know, it's, if it's in, on the Internet, it's got to be true, right? So I, I got this information from Wikipedia. It says this. She was one of the best-known American Christian astrologers and psychics. That just kind of, I don't know, Christian astrologer and psychic that just all that stuff just seems kind of I don't think it's a believer who wrote this but anyways she was one of the best known American Christian astrologers and psychics of the 20th century due to her syndicated newspaper um, astrology column some well publicized uh, predictions and a best-selling biography by emphasizing a few coincidentally correct predictions and ignoring those that were wrong she acquired both fame and notoriety 
The ability to persuade the public in this matter is known as the Gene Dixon effect. So now you know what the Gene Dixon effect is. Probably never heard of it, but um, God here is not using the Gene Dixon effect. God is not, you know, it's not like, well, you know, if you go to the Bible and, you know, maybe, yeah, about 80% of the prophecies are true. You know, there's 20 we won't pay attention. They're not, they didn't happen the way God said, you know, so he's got a pretty good success rate. No, no, no. Every prophecy, every word of God has come true. If, if it has, if the prophecy has been fulfilled, it's been fulfilled exactly as God said it would according to his words. And the amazing thing here, God is not only through the prophets telling them, hey, Babylon, and, and actually when Isaiah was prophesying about Babylon, Babylon wasn't even, they weren't the world power at that time. The Assyrians were the world power. Babylon was this backwater country back then. And Isaiah's like, Babylon's going to come. And you know, Well, here we have uh, Jeremiah prophesying not only that Nebuchadnezzar, not only that Babylon would come and uh, conquer them, but that their time of captivity would be 70 years. The length of their captivity. This was fulfilled exactly when Cyrus the Persian, because Persia, the Persians and the, pre, the, Mer, the Medes and the Persians, got to get that out right. The Medes and the Persians, they, uh, they conquered the Babylonians. And when Cyrus the Mede, or Cyrus the Persian, came into power, it was at that time, 70 years were up. Daniel was reading the prophecies, and he reads Jeremiah's prophecies. He goes, 70 years, you know, well, he probably didn't have a wristwatch, but, you know, he took out his uh, sundial or whatever, and he's like, you know, looking at the calendar, and he's like, hey, wait, it's 70 years. We're, we're there. And Daniel was able to say, hey, the 70 years are, are about to be fulfilled. And uh, here, God fulfilled his prophecy exactly like he said, without using the Gene Dixon effect. But then again, of course, you would expect that of a God, right? I mean, who wants to worship a God that gets like 80% of his prophecies right? You know, I, he's God. So, verse 12. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord. And I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words, which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall be served by them also. um, And I will repay them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands." When, when Jeremiah, prof, or when God says here that at the, when the end of the 70 years are completed, that he's going to pu- uh, punish the king of Babylon, he's not talking about Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar by that time had died. He was off the scene at that time. But 70 years later, Belshazzar is the king of Babylon. And Belshazzar was a wicked man. He took the, the goblets, the, the holy instruments of the temple, and used it at a, at a party, basically. And anyways, you probably know that story as well. Um, that's also in the book of Daniel. But I can't wait till we get to the book of Daniel. There's a lot of cool things in there. But anyway, so it's not Nebuchadnezzar that's, you know, he's going to be punished. It's Belshazzar. Verse 15, For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hands and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. 
Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation and an astonishment, a hissing and a curse as it is this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes and all his people, all the mixed multitude, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, namely Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the people of Ammon, and all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastlands which are across the sea, Dedan, Tema, Buzz, and all who are in the farthest corners, all the kings of Arabia and all the kings of the mixed multitude who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam and all the kings of the Medes, all the kings of the north far and near one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world which are on the face of the earth, also the king of Shishak shall drink after them. Now, Jeremiah didn't go on a prophecy tour you know, nationwide. Here's, you know, come here, prophecy about how you're going to be destroyed by God. You know, that's not what happened here. Jeremiah did not physically go to all the nations of the earth with a literal cup of, of uh, the fury of God. This is Jeremiah's prophecy, the prophecy that he's giving here to the nation of Judah. The Lord says it's also applying to all the nations, all the nations on the face of the world. At that time, and the cup again, I said it's not a literal cup, it's the cup of fury. You go throughout scriptures, and the cup of God's wrath, the cup of the fury of his wrath, it's mentioned over and over again. And it's really, it's, it's just speaking about God's wrath against wickedness and sin. And so, what, what God is basically saying here is, hey, you know, not only is Judah going to be held responsible, but, but all the nations of the world are going to have to answer to me. Verse 27, Therefore you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And it shall be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall certainly drink. For behold, I will bring uh, calamity on the city which is called by my name. And should you be utterly unpunished? You shall not be unpunished, for I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord. God basically is saying to the nations, Hey, if I'm willing to punish my people and my city, Jerusalem, because of their disobedience, what makes you think you're going to escape judgment before your wickedness and your sin? Peter picks up on this. In his epistle, in 1 Peter 4, verse 17, it says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? And what Peter is saying and what Jeremiah is saying here basically is that, you know, if God's willing and able and will punish his people for their sin and he loves them they're his loved people we're his loved children and and he and he punishes us and he chastises us what do you think he's going to do to his enemies who despise him and shake their fist at him that's a scary thing that's that's a very sombering thing that uh, that God is saying here you know it's amazing whenever a prominent Christian, a prominent evangelist, or whatever. Whenever they fall, you know, they maybe they have some kind of a, you know, a, a, you know, whatever happens. 
sexual sins or whatever happens, money, you know, whatever the issue is, it makes big news, doesn't it? You read about the, the famed evangelist, you know, they, they did this and stuff, and we could go out and write off a list of all the people that we know in our culture that have, that have had this, you know, happen to them. And a lot of people, they like to mock the Christians, those hypocrites, look, they say that and they've done that and stuff, and, and you know, rightly so. However, what they fail to realize is that God, you know, he's dealing with them severely. What do you think he's going to do to these people that don't love him? That's, that's a serious thing. And this is what the Lord through Jeremiah is telling prophetically to all the nations of the earth. Verse 30, Therefore prophesy against them all these words, and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A noise will come to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind will be raised up from the farthest parts of the earth. Verse 33. And at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth, even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. Wail, shepherds, and cry. Roll about in the ashes, you leaders of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and your dispersions are fulfilled. You shall fall like a precious vessel, and the shepherds will have no way to flee, nor the leaders of the flock escape. A voice of the cry of the shepherds and a wailing of the leaders to the flock will be heard, for the Lord has plundered their pasture, and the peaceful dwellings are cut down. Because of the fierce anger of the Lord, he has left his lair like the lion, for their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. This prophecy here, uh, Jeremiah, I believe, is not only prophesying to the nations that existed in his day, but I believe that this prophecy is, he's fast forwarding a prophecy to the last days, to the time when God is going to pour out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world known as the Great Tribulation. A period of time when, when, when God, is, is, His wrath is going to be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. You see, because God has a controversy with all flesh who reject His Son, Jesus Christ. He has a controversy, and he's, there's going to be a day of reckoning for everyone. Well, chapter 25, when we began it, it talked about that this prophecy happened in the fourth year of the reign of Jeroboam. Now we get into chapter 26, and it says it's in the beginning of the reign of Jeroboam. And you thought that the uh, producers of the movie, you know, Back to the Future, had an original idea. They didn't. I mean, we see this back and forth. You know, we start here, now we're going back, and that's what's happening here. Jeremiah's prophecies are not in chronological order. Um, so, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 26. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, so that would have been four years earlier to chapter 25, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house, and speak to all the cities of Judah, which come to worship the Lord's house, in the Lord's house, excuse me, all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not diminish a word. 
Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way, that I may relent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. The false prophets in Jeremiah's day were condemned because they were perverting God's word. They were making it say what God did not say. And Proverbs 30, verse 6 says, Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. And that's exactly what the false prophets were doing. Jeremiah, put yourself in Jeremiah's shoes. He's got a hostile audience. The message that he's giving is not a message that they wanted to hear. And there's, the prophets were few and far between. I mean, there was, there, we'll find out about another prophet here shortly. But Jeremiah's, you know, pretty much at this time, maybe all that he knows, he's the only prophet who's prophesying a different message from all the false prophets. Can you imagine the pressure to diminish God's word? Because it wasn't popular. It wasn't going to be received like, yeah, we want to hear what you have to say, Jeremiah. People were probably grinding their teeth and when he was talking, you know. For Jeremiah, the temptation would have been to diminish or to hold back God's word. And, you know, I think as we're getting closer and closer to what I believe are the last days, I think that the pressure on not only on pastors like me, but all of us as believers in Jesus Christ, there's going to be a pressure to diminish God's word. To not say some of the stuff, you know, the hard, the difficult things that God's Word says. And we're told not to diminish God's Word. Paul, uh, you know, what an example for you and I. When he was meeting with the elders of the church of Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 27, he says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I mean, he he just didn't hold back. He said, this is what God's Word says. And the people, of course, were responsible to, to respond to it. But at least Paul's conscience was clear. Hey, I, you know, I haven't diminished God's word. John in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 18, towards the end of the book of Revelation, he says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the works of uh, excuse me, from the words of this book, of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things that are written in this book. It's interesting. Back uh, a long time ago, uh, we first moved back, when Teresa and I got married, and we first moved back to California, and, and uh, I started working for uh, IBM back then. And I think it was probably around 1984, 1985, something like that. And uh, anyways... I got injured, and it wasn't, I don't know if it was work-related, but I ended up having to have a surgery. And so I was laid up for, oh, I don't know, I think it was eight weeks I was out of work. And four weeks I was pretty much just laid up on a couch in our living room. And during this time, these Jehovah Witnesses, no, Mormons, excuse me, two guys, Mormons, they came to the door, you know, and and I had, you know, given my heart, you know, back to the Lord a few years back. And, you know, it's just really growing in the Lord. We were attending a Calvary at the time. And uh, anyway, so I invited them in and talked with them. And, and uh, you know, they're talking about the Book of Mormon. We have this other testament of Jesus Christ. And I, and I quoted this verse to him. I said, hey, wait a minute. I thought I had him down pat. I'm like, okay, you guys never figured this out. And so I read them this thing. You know, whoever, if I testify, whoever hears the words of the prophecy of this book, 
If anyone adds to these things, God will add in the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. And I'm pretty like, huh, so what do you guys think? (laughs) And the guy, he just, he blew me away. He goes, well, that's speaking about Revelation. We're not talking about Revelation. We're not talking about the book of Revelation. And I'm like, oh, you know, and I, I didn't know what to answer him. I would now if I had the same situation because even though John might be speaking about, you could maybe make an argument that he's speaking just about Revelation. You can go through scriptures just like we did here in Jeremiah and other places in Deuteronomy where God says, don't add to my words and don't take away from my words. And so I think there's you know ample, ample justification to say that the, the Mormons have violated that. They have added to God's words with this other testament of of Jesus Christ. But it was a learning experience for me. Verse 4, And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me, to walk in my law which I have set before you, to heed the words of my prophets, uh, of my servants the prophets whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not heeded, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. Shiloh. What, what is Shiloh? What's so significant about the city of Shiloh? Well, Shiloh was Israel's capital for the first 300 years that it was a nation. Uh, Shiloh was where the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant was located from the time of Joshua all the way through the time of the judges to the time of uh, when David became king. All, or before, right around the time when David became king. All during this time... That was the capital of Israel. That's where God met with the people in the Ark of the, or at the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. And the children of, the, of Israel, excuse me, at that time, they were disobedient to God. And so God allowed the Israels to be defeated in battle by their arch enemies, the Philistines. And uh, during this one particular battle, the Philistines, they won that battle, but they also captured the Ark of the Covenant and they took it into their land as kind of like a spoils of war. And uh, Shiloh eventually became a desolation, des- desolation, not a destination, a desolation and a ruin. And, uh, you know, it's, it, for many centuries, people didn't even know where Shiloh was. And then I think it was like in the 1800s, this guy discovered Shiloh. And we've actually, some of us have gone there and visited it. And uh, it's pretty fascinating. Well, anyways, you know the story about the, the Ark of the Covenant, it, you know, it came back into the land, and, and David brought it to Jerusalem, and, and so it was there. Uh, and then, of course, then the temple was built in, in Solomon's time. So then that was the capital, and that was where God met with the Israelites. Well, here God is telling them that, uh, you know, because of their disobedience, because of their, their, their unfaithfulness and their rejecting the words of the prophets that he had sent to them, he was going to make... Jerusalem make the temple like he had done with Shiloh, where they were going to be ransacked by the enemies. And, and that was you know, a major thing for Israel at the time when the Ark of the Covenant was captured, because that was basically a sign that God was no more with them, among them. It was like his hand of protection was lifted away. So you know, Jeremiah is basically telling the people, if they don't turn from their ways, Jerusalem and the temple, which they took so much pride in, would suffer the same fate as Shiloh. Verse 7. Well, 
What was the response? Verse 7. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now what happened when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him, saying, You will surely die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant? And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. So we have these three groups of people seizing Jeremiah and wanting to kill him for his words, what he is speaking, the, the priests, the prophets, and the people, and all the people. But then we're introduced to a fourth group of people. Verse 10. When the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. So if you can imagine the picture, you've got priests and prophets. They're going crazy, right? And, and they've riled up all the crowds, and now the crowds are going crazy. There's basically a riot going on down by the temple. And the princes of the land, they're like, hey, what's going on? You know, they hear about all this commotion. So they go down to find out what's going on. Verse 11, And the priests and the prophets spoke to the princes and all the people, saying, This man deserves to die, for he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your own ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the princes and all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city with all the words that you have heard. Now, therefore, amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent concerning the doom that he has pronounced against you. As for me, here I am in your hand. Do with me as seems good and proper to you. But know for certain that if you put me to death, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourselves, on this city, and on its inhabitants. For truly the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. Notice verse 12, who Jeremiah does not speak to. Jeremiah speaks to uh, the princes and the people, but he doesn't address the priests and the prophets. Why? Well, because the priests and the prophets were the main problem. They stood the most to lose if the temple was ransacked, if Jerusalem was overthrown. Um, They had led the people astray. And they had a vested interest in silencing Jeremiah because if the temple was destroyed, their livelihood goes away. It's an economic thing for ones. Not only that, but Jeremiah's message is also an indictment on how they had corrupted the service of the Lord. So they stood the most to lose. It was the most offensive to them. And so the priests and the prophets riled up the people, much like the Sanhedrin did at the time of the trial of Jesus Christ. You know, when when they're before Pilate, and, and Pilate says, what shall I do with these men? The priests... And the and the you know the Sanhedrin they're like crucifying crucifying they got the crowds going the crowds like yeah crucify him, and of course you know the story. Verse sixteen. So the princes, and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, "This man does not deserve to die, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God." Isn't that fascinating? 
in verse 16, the princes and all the people say that Nelson say Jeremiah shouldn't die. Now I can understand the priests saying that, or excuse me, the princes saying that, because they just walked onto the scene. But the people, earlier, they're like, yeah, he needs to die. And all of a sudden, they're, yeah, he needs to live. <laughs> you know, don't kill him. What happened? Well, let me tell you what. People, crowds are fickle. Crowds can be swayed and manipulated. Why do you think people are always trying to tell us what is the public opinion polls? Why do, you know, politicians are always looking at the public opinion polls? And, you know, the media is always trying to form, you know, public opinion because they can manipulate crowds. They can manipulate the majority of people into doing things and agreeing to things. It's interesting. In And there's all kinds of church governments. You know, they've got, you know, uh, the, the, the Presbyterian denomination has a certain government that they use for churches. And, uh, you know, I don't know, all these different ways that churches are ran. And I think in the United States anyways... Uh, you know, there's a, this great idea that, you know, we need democracy in the church and everybody needs to vote and everybody has to have a say in what happens in the church. And, and I would agree to that up to a point. But here we get back to the issue that people can be swayed in public opinion. Sometimes the group is not necessarily right. Sometimes the group is wrong. And so, um, you know, it's not a perfect situation either. Verse 18 this is one of the princes saying, speaking. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah ever put him to death? And of course, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And then again, rhetorical answer is yes. And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them. But we are doing great evil against ourselves. You know, I said earlier in weeks earlier that I believe that Jeremiah was, you know, only met opposition and no one ever repented during his ministries. And it looks like I was wrong because here we have a prince, at least one person, who is seriously considering what Jeremiah was speaking and actually rose up to Jeremiah's defense. So I think I maybe spoke a little prematurely weeks in weeks past. This prince here of Judah reminded them of the similar prophecies of Micah. And this is the Micah, this is the minor prophet, you know, one of the books that we have in our Old Testament, the prophecies of Micah. And he's referring back to the time when Hezekiah was king and Sennacherib, who was king of Assyria, the world ruler at that time, was trying to invade Jerusalem. And at that time, Hezekiah and Isaiah prayed to the Lord, and God wiped out the invading armies of the Assyrians. And Micah saying, or this, this prince is saying, hey, you know, remember what happened in Micah's situation? Remember how the king cried out to the Lord and God, you know, averted the disaster and, and, and saved them? God could do the same thing to the Babylonians if all the people would repent. So he's just saying, you know, he's just reminding them of a a past situation. Well, that ends what I think this prince is speaking. I don't don't think the quotations and punctuation in the Bible is necessarily inspired, but, you know, in my Bible, anyways, that's the end of the quotation. Now we get into the next verse, verse 20. 
And uh, this next portion here deals with another prophet who was a contemporary of Jeremiah who's facing the same death threats as Jeremiah faced. Verse 20, chapter 26. Now there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah the son of Shemaiah of Kirjath-Jerim, who prophesied against the city and against this land according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim the king, with all his mighty men and all the princes, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard it, he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. I can... I think we can safely assume that the prince who defended Jeremiah just a few verses before is not one of these other princes who wanted to kill Uriah. Unlike Jeremiah, who stayed in Jerusalem, even in the midst of great hostility and tension, Uriah feared and fled to Egypt. And uh, verse 22, Then Jehoiakim the king sent men to Egypt, El Nathan the son of Akbor, and other men who went with him to Egypt. And they brought Uriah from Egypt and brought him to Jehoiakim the king who killed him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. This is the only place in Scripture that we read about this particular prophet, Uriah. There's no other mention of him in Scriptures. And uh, yet we know that he died serving the Lord faithfully. And of course, he's going to receive a eternal reward, and God didn't, you know, he's mentioned here in scriptures. You know, that kind of got me thinking when I was preparing this, because I don't know if you've been following the stories in Iran about, you know, the, the, the American pastors, I think it's from Idaho or something, and, and he used to live in Iran, and he became, he was Muslim, he and his wife, and they became believers, and uh, he was going back and forth to Iran and, and uh, starting an orphanage, there in, in Iran, and in any ways, the Iranians, they took him off a, a, a bus, and now he's serving eight years in that notorious prison in, in Tehran, Saeed Abedini. Um, you know, and there's been a lot of outcry. People are trying to, you know, encourage the church to pray for his release, and of course we do pray for his release. But I was thinking about that. You know, here we get this, this person that, you know, he's got great focus and great attention, which I think is, is awesome. But how many other Christians are there in Iran that are also suffering, who are also being persecuted, that we don't know anything about? And are we praying for them? You know, are we so concerned about them as Christians? There's a lot of nameless, persecuted, persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world that are suffering. I just read yesterday that Christian, uh, Christians are being persecuted in very unique ways in Iran. One of the ways that they're being persecuted is women who have nursing babies, they're being arrested. Just the Christians, the, the Christian nursing mothers are being arrested, probably, I'm assuming, for indecent exposure, you know, in, in, the, in the Sharia, according to Sharia law or whatever. But could you imagine being a mother of a newborn baby? Your baby's crying and, and you know, you, you, and they're probably using as much modesty because you go to that country, you see that they're all wearing, you know, head coverings and everything. And, and, uh, and yet they're being singled out and being arrested for that. I mean, there's, there's so much persecution going on throughout the world. And uh, a lot of these people, we'll never hear about them. We'll never know about them. Well, not in this, in this life, however. But I like what Hebrews 6.10 says. 
For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And God hasn't forgotten any one of those people. You might not be recognized for what you're doing for the Lord. Maybe, maybe we don't recognize what you're doing for the Lord, but you're serving in some way. God sees it, and he will reward you accordingly. I think that's a, that's a, that's a cool thing to, to remember. Verse 24. Nevertheless, the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. Um, We read about him in other places in scriptures. He's one of the men who served with Josiah, Jehoiakim's father, at the time when the temple scrolls were found in the rubble of of the temple because it had been neglected, and they found the the book of the law, the scrolls of the law, and they brought it to Josiah. And Josiah's like, we got to... He started reading about the prophecies of the Lord against the nation that would reject him. And, and he's like, we got to find out more about this. So he's, they sent, among other men, this Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, to Huldah, the prophetess, to find out, you know, what are we to do? And it was concerning the judgment uh, in the law against Judah. Ahikam, the son of Shaphat, appears to have been a good and a God-fearing man. And because he's mentioned here in this last verse... Or in, is this the last verse? I'm not even sure. And because he's mentioned here, I don't think it's a stretch to say that he's the one of the princes, if not the prince, who spoke up in defense of Jeremiah. He's possibly the only one who spoke up. Or Jeremiah is the only one speaking up and people are wanting to kill him. And now this guy's coming to his defense. Probably might have been the, very, the only other one that stood up and said, hey, you know, what about Micah? What what are we doing here to this man? And that would have been an unpopular thing to say as well. It takes guts. It takes courage to be the only person to speak up in a crowd about your convictions, especially when everybody else's convictions is just the opposite of you. It takes guts to stand up like that and to be counted. Now for Jeremiah, God had kept his word to protect Jeremiah, and he used Ahikam, the son of Shaphat, to accomplish it. For Ahikam, the son of Shaphat, when we get to it later on in in the book of Jeremiah, when Nebuchadnezzar takes Judah captive, takes the kings and the princes and all all the people, including Daniel that we talked about earlier, takes them captive, he leaves behind a remnant to farm the land, basically, so that it doesn't become, you know, uh, a waste place, basically. And so he leaves behind a remnant, and he makes a man named Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, governor of the land of Judah. And he entrusts Jeremiah into Gedaliah's care. And Gedaliah will turn out to be a good and a God-fearing man like his father. And what that spoke to me is that, you know, here you have this man who's willing to, to put his life on the line, he's willing to stand up for righteousness and say, hey, wait, you know, the only one standing up. And what an example. Of course, he's blessed, but what an example he was to his children. And now his son is just like him. You know, I think it's such a, a, an encouragement for you fathers, especially, to be godly men 
and to make those difficult decisions and to stand for righteousness because you're influencing the children. You, you can influence them all you want with your words. Do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. But they're more influenced by what you and I do than what we say. You can ask any one of your children. They'll tell you that. <laughs> but I believe all this happened because of the godly influence that Hecom was to his family. I, it's just a, there's a nugget there. just a treasure there, I think. Verse 24. I'm going to just requote this again. Nevertheless, the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. I think it's interesting how that's phrased. The hand of the people, that they would put him to death. The placing the blame, basically, on whether Jeremiah lives or dies on the will of the people. But, you know, that's how the priests and the prophets operated. They... You know, they were kind of fomenting this riot against Jeremiah, and they kind of are laying back and, you know, and kind of washing their hands, and, you know, we're the religious people. And, you know, it reminds me of when Jesus is crucified. You can just hear the defense of the Sanhedrin if they were standing before God saying, hey, it was the will of the people to crucify Christ. But they're the ones that got him going. Well, Jeremiah is not going to be completely out of the woods, as we'll see later on. He still has enemies. He's still going to suffer persecution in the following chapters. There's going to be, it's going to, things are still going to be hard for Jeremiah. But God promised that he wouldn't be killed. God promised that he'd be faithful to him. And God is, as we're seeing, will be faithful and has raised up a man to, to stand in the gap to protect Jeremiah. For you and I as Christians, God doesn't promise you and I that our life as Christians is going to be easy. He never, he never said that. He never said that, you know, things are going to be just rosy. Um, but he does promise to supply us with his Holy Spirit who will help us in our weaknesses. And he's also promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And so, you know, we can look at this lesson. Hopefully, we can get something out of this to apply to our own lives. Um, you know, I, I just look back at the sovereignty of God dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. And then I look at this man, Gedaliah. By the way, Gedaliah, he'll end up being murdered later on at the end of the, at the, end of the book of Jeremiah. But uh, what an example for fathers, right? To be for your children, to have an influence on the next generation. Why don't you stand up and let's go, Lord, in prayer.